Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, hello. So today's show, today's uh, episode of The Nose, is a little bit more of a piece, I think, than we typically uh, are. I mean, I think that we flit from flower to flower like a hummingbird on many episodes of The Nose. But I think today there's sort of a way in which the whole thing hangs together. So in the second uh, segment, we're going to talk about a new show called Kevin Can F Himself. Uh, it's on AMC+. Plus. It stars Annie Murphy, formerly of Schitt's Creek. It's interesting that she seems to specialize in TV shows whose titles are risky to say on the radio. Uh, but for some reason, you can say one but not the other. I don't know. Uh, anyway, it really kind of experiments with the form of the sitcom and with a particular aspect of the male and female gazes. Uh, we'll tell you more about it then. But, you know, kind of apropos of the fact that it's on AMC+, Plus, we're going to spend the first segment talking about the configuration of the streamiverse. Now, we're in the middle of the streaming wars Probably not all of the players will emerge unscathed or even whole and alive. Uh, we're working off two different articles, one of which talks about the death of sort of massive hit TV shows. And the other one talks about whether or not Netflix has lost its cool, uh, whether or not Netflix is no longer the buzzy cool thing to be watching. So uh, joining us to do all that, uh, well, we are fortunate, in fact, to have a media studies professor to do all that. What could be better? Uh, Bill Usman is a professor of media, media studies at Sacred Heart University. Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, and dancer. She's the founder, director, and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. Um, so... Where to begin? Well, first of all, let me just say a little bit more that, uh, yes, Steven Zajic, writing in uh, the Washington Post, uh, has a piece called The TV Hit Isn't Just Dying, It May Already Be Dead. Uh, and then Kate Nibbs, uh, writing in Wired, uh, has a piece called Netflix is Losing Its Cool. Even as it dominates globally, the streaming giant no longer shines. HBO Max and Disney Plus, your move. So I think we can sort of fold these two things together, but let's also take them in their in their separate parts too. So, Bill, this is th that idea of the TV hit. TV hit probably means something that in the past, twenty million people or more would watch, and we now mm -hmm. we now live in a world where you know something can be sort of part of the conversation, as they say, with like seven hundred seventy thousand <laughs> documented viewers at any given moment. So. So something something has changed, and, and one of the questions would be for the good or the bad or a little of both. Yeah, um, as a very sophisticated media studies professor, um, I can sign off on this as a legitimate debate. You know, one 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 of the debates that started happening in media studies a while ago was whether this term mass communication really had any valence anymore because you know what are we talking about when we talk about the masses and you know reaching large numbers of people so that term mass communication kind of went by the by um in favor of just media studies looking at media and all of its different configurations and you know whether you're reaching large numbers of people or not so in in the article in the washington post they give an example that i know 
you and me and Carolyn were all watching uh, Mayor of Easttown, and we were all really, really into it. And it seemed like people we knew were really, really into it. But they point out that it was not seen by nearly 99% of Americans. So when something that gets that kind of attention um, is so... Is, is is so taken up by such a small slice of the audience. I think there is a legitimate question here about whether we are losing some sense of a common culture and whether that's a problem or not, I think is debatable and we could maybe get back to that. Right. Uh, you know, I will say that during award seasons, there was a, a quite a bit of um, consternation in kind of among the cognoscenti of media about the fact that uh, the the series I May Destroy You, which I believe is an HBO series, but don't hold me mm-hmm. to that, uh, wasn't getting enough award nominations. And it was such a game changing, transformative piece of popular culture. And I kind of did a little research. I mean, it, it you know, mirrors. Mayor of Easttown probably had something like 10 to 20 times the audience of I May Destroy You. I mean, very, very few people uh, happened to be watching I May Destroy You, but they were all kind of having the same conversation on Twitter. I mean, there's sort of a way in which people hook up. You know, Carolyn, I think about you in connection with this because, I mean, in connection with both of these articles in a way, because, you know— Every time that you come on the show, if we're talking about some streaming product like Mayor of Easttown or something, um, that's very interesting. But then when we get to the endorsements, you inevitably endorse a show I have never heard of and which, when you describe it, I would never under any circumstances watch. And I think that kind of speaks to the point of the idea that there aren't kind of Seinfeld-type hits that like everybody has to watch these days. Well, you know, to be fair, I feel like I endorsed shit. I know I did. I endorsed Shit's Creek yes. on the show before anyone was watching it. And I remember like it was on Pop Network and I, you were like, what even is that? So I do feel like sometimes I discover a gem that I'm just ahead of the curve with. Uh, <laughs> it's not always just a show that only I am watching and you and everyone else never would watch. No, no, it's not only only you are watching. I mean, I think a lot of people are watching the shows that you watch, but they they belong to, I mean, quite a few of the shows that you endorse are, they sound very amusing and they're sort of reality TV shows and stuff like that. They're just sort of like, you know, it, it just suggests to me that there's a lot of fragmentation of audience. I definitely think so. But so I think that that's the plus and minus of what we have going on right now with all of these streaming services, plus, you know, cable TV still existing. And in full disclosure, I still have cable TV as well. Um, I am a millennial who can't cut the cord. Uh, So, you know, I think that there's just so many choices out there. There's just so much, which sometimes is amazing because you can really discover these these gems. And then also it becomes so overwhelming where I cannot tell you the number of times I've sat down to watch something and all I watch is just scroll myself scrolling through 12 different streaming services, trying to figure out what to watch before like ultimately settling on just watching Arrested Development again. So (laughs) I, I think that, 
you know, when there's so much, it's like being at a buffet, you're just like overwhelmed and you either just start filling your plate with tons of crap or you just are like, oh my God, I'm just going to take some bread and go sit down and figure this out. <laughs> so <laughs> this well, is- Well, I, I do love me some buffet. Yeah. People in my personal life can attest to that. Some, somehow this connects to the fact that the last time I saw Carolyn, we were at a farmer's market where she bought an ice cream sandwich and left. Uh, <laughs> but- uh, but exactly. so, but so, Bill, you and I. A, it was a plant-based ice cream. Yeah. Sandwich. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you and Bill, you and I are old codgers, and so we sort of have lived through. You several... finally said it. I felt like that's what you were dancing around. Well, I you mean, you and I are old, and Carolyn is young, and we're watching differently. Well, we're watching differently for for those and other reasons too. But you and I have lived through various iterations, starting with you know a universe that consisted of three networks plus maybe yep. public television plus a couple of independent UHF channels. If you were like, and that was it, you know. And then there's mm-hmm. been all these different changes. Um, you know, I mean, HBO came before everything else, uh, at least in terms of things that arrived via cable. Uh, but there have been all these different changes. But, you know, even going into the 90s, there was this sort of sense that, yes, there was this kind of destination TV and there was this so-called water cooler moment, which was, mm-hmm. you know, last night on Seinfeld, they had the soup Nazi. So you're going to go into work and you'll actually have something to talk about with the other people at work that you don't like to talk to very much because you can all talk about the soup Nazi. And the question is, does this have any real value? I mean, we're going to lose it, right? Because, you know, everybody's watching different stuff. So are we losing anything worthwhile? I think that is a legitimate question. You kind of hinted in our emails about whether that water cooler moment was ever actually as much of a thing as, as people, you know, liked to talk about it as being a thing. But it is true that um, the... The, the the slogans and the language of television does infiltrate into our daily lives and it kind of does become part of even how we speak. So we were, you know, kind of joshing around about what's up hmm. and, uh, you know, Borat, you know, very nice, you like. And I, I can't tell you how many people used to come up to me and say those kind of things. And now I'm not quite sure what it would be. I don't know if I can pick something that would resonate with like a large group of people. What I don't know is, does that mean something really significant for the for the sense of a common culture? It is really true that... Si- since the 1950s, you know, for 70 years now, television has been the primary driver of cultural life. And I think we can relate this to a lot of current concerns about how polarized we have become as a society. Um, Even that, to a certain extent, is ahistorical because there have always been, you know, great rifts. It's a little silly to, to think that are we more polarized now than we were in 1863? Um, but it is true that there is something happening that is driving us apart from each other. Colin, I think you and I right now are both reading uh, the new George Packer book, which gets into this, this fragmentation in, in politics. But I'm wondering, does this have something to do not just with politics, but also with having fewer shared narratives 
that we can kind of coalesce around. So here's here's where I re- sort of reject that premise, although, I mean, I'm intrigued by the premise. Here's where I have, I think it sort of falls apart. So Robert Thompson from Syracuse University, who's been teaching media studies since, you know, it involved like cave paintings, I think, uh, is quoted in the Washington Post piece. And he talks about the fact that there was a time when people with deep, deep differences around the country, nonetheless, all knew the words to the theme song of Gilligan's Island. And that's absolutely true. But it's not as though that made like the Vietnam War or integration any easier to get through. You know, right. it just means that everybody watched Gilligan's Island and then hated each other the rest of the time. Right. Um, and, and, and I agree. And, and Carolyn, you know, to 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 go back to you, the, the benefit, obviously, of the collapse of any kind of monochromatic, you know, hegemonic television wor- universe is that. All kinds of different viewpoints can be represented that you can find, you know, no matter who you are, what your niche is, how you self-identify, you can probably find something that speaks to you, which was impossible decades ago. Yeah, I mean, so that's kind of the thing. Obviously, like water cooler culture has never been existent in my life. I heard of it, but I've never worked in an office. And uh, so I kind of I feel like I've missed the chance for that to ever be a thing. But that being said, I mean, TV is kind of like a common ground how of something that you can talk about in any awkward situation. Like if you're at a party and you're just trying to figure out small talk, you know, everyone says, oh, have you are you watching this show? And and even with like social media, it's a way to connect and sort of the more niche shows that are less, uh, you know, that aren't getting the attention of like maybe a mayor of East town. If you're watching something that is just kind of like buried there in Netflix or Hulu, it becomes this like really deep connection. Like if you happen to strike up conversation with someone in real life or on social media, and you're connecting over this show that you're both experiencing and watching or that you watched, it's a, it's still a, a bonding moment that you're, that, that you can connect over. And it's, I think that we're in a culture now where you know, everyone kind of like gets to have their little freak flags fly and like whatever you're into, like I fell down a rabbit hole of like cross stitching, how I don't cross stitch, but apparently like there are all these people who this is a big thing. And uh, I came across it because this woman in Boston did a cross stitch of the Isabella Stewart Gardner crime. (laughs) And I was fascinated by this and then realized that there's this whole culture and this whole like internet and Instagram and TikTok world with it. And I think that it's, so I was just thinking this week how it's pretty cool that sort of anything you're into, you can find connections with now in uh, an easier way than I think we could have, that then existed. Like when I was younger and you were into something, it was harder to find people that were into those same things. Yeah. So, so- I think- that's the value of that. So we should also kind of try to fold in the piece from Wired, which talks about whether it makes the argument, which I don't entirely buy, that, you know, Netflix had the sort of the first streaming imprint, you know, that it was sort of the, the like little baby ducks we all kind of imprinted on Netflix uh, and that it's beginning to lose some altitude. And as these streaming wars unfold and they involve HBO Max and Hulu and Disney Plus and Apple Plus and AMC Plus and Peacock and the five other things I'm forgetting right now that, you know, that Netflix doesn't seem quite as cutting edge as it used to. So I don't know, Bill, Bill, how should we think about these streaming wars? Well, I do think that we're getting to a point where 
it's going to become financially impossible for most people to keep up with as much as they want to. Uh, I was sharing with all of you, Lori and I already subscribe to, you know, at least a half a dozen. It might even be more. There might be ones that I'm thinking about. And, you know, for a lot of people, you can't start spending 20% of your household income on television. <laughs> like that's just not going to work for people. There will be, I think, um, some that will kind of emerge as, you know, the leviathans of this. And I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see some kind of merging together. Well, we're, we're, I, I, I think, think we're already seeing that. I mean, for example, yes. uh, HBO has been kind of spun off by AT&T uh, and, and then merged into uh, the Discovery properties that include Discovery Plus, you know, because I think mm -hmm. one of the ways that you win this game and this is, I think, pointed on the Wired article, is you, if there's five people living in the house, you have five things that eat, that one by one by one by one, each one of them wants that one of those particular things. So, you know, uh, HBO right now has that kind of a little bit more of a prestige vibe to it with at least the new content that it's producing. But Discovery Plus is going to give them stuff like Property Brothers or whatever that show is called and you know things like that. So, I mean, that whole idea, that kind of reshuffling is happening all the time. Now, Carolyn, I think it's also true to say that you probably subscribe to a lot of streaming services, but perhaps less intentionally than Bill. I think you're like me. You can't remember. Like, am I going to remember to cancel AMC Plus once I'm done with Kevin can F himself or even before I'm done with Kevin can F himself? Or is it just going to be popping up on my uh, credit card or my Amazon account or, or, or whatever? And I think you're kind of in that position, too. Yeah, absolutely. As I explained in email to all of you, I signed up for CBS All Access for to watch a show that I had to watch for the nose. They had and it was a free trial, forgot to cancel it, had been paying for CBS All Access for years, literally years, and then went to sign up for the free trial of Paramount Plus and learned that CBS All Access was now Paramount Plus and that I had been paying for it already. <laughs> Tragic. Um and I literally only wanted Paramount Plus to watch one show that I was going to do with a free trial, which clearly was an ill-fated plan from the start. So, yeah, I think that that I'm exactly who they're targeting because I'm just sloth. <laughs> so they are getting me in on free trials or, you know, with that one show that looks good. And then I am just paying for I, I probably have every I think I must have every subscription you can have. Uh, which is wild. Yeah. And I, I, I really, there, I need that app that like helps you know what you're paying for. That actually is what I, what I should do with the rest of my day. Um, but so I think that the, I know like Hulu and Disney plus they teamed up, right? That's one, um, that is like all streaming together. I think that that's going to be the key, uh, to help consolidate uh, but I posed the question to you guys, if you had to choose one streaming service, which one would it be? Could you even? Yeah, I, I, I think what's going to happen is that you're going to wind up with something that's kind of analogous to 
Stop and Shop and Whole Foods, which is <laughs> the you know, and Netflix is probably going to be a Stop and Shop superstore, you know, and you're going to have to have Netflix to get sort of bread and milk and stuff like that at a reasonable price, you know, and, and that they'll and most people will wind up with another with a second one that's kind of Whole Foods. I mean, like HBO is sort of arguably Whole Foods. You pay the same amount for a smaller, ba- much smaller bag of groceries, but the groceries are a little bit more carefully curated by by Whole Foods. <laughs> so you kind of need a maybe a lot of people will. Feel that they need a little bit of both. I don't think that we can go on as we have been going on. I think there has to be, you know, a, a big sorting out, uh, you know. But but I, I want to say one other thing, and I want Bill to respond because this is a good media studies thing. If I were going to make a series like a, a fictionalized semi docu series about the streaming wars, you know, a la Game of Thrones, but about streaming wars, I would, I think. The Stark family for me would be HBO, not only because Game of Thrones was on HBO, but because I think HBO really is, to me, a more interesting focus than Netflix is. HBO, people don't realize this, HBO started in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, it started there, Bill, you and when you and I were young, there was a thing called pay TV that certain people could right. get way back when we were kids and TV was very, very primitive. And HBO kind of grew up out of that, you know, and then it's morphed a couple of times. It, 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 switched to satellite delivery, it switched to streaming delivery, you know, I mean, it's really been kind of, and it was always been kind of driven by this idea of content you really had to have that you couldn't get anywhere else. A lot of that was driven by a guy named Richard Plepler, uh, who was an executive there who grew up around here, went to Watkinson. I was doing various kinds of events with him for a while and get to know him. Uh, he left because he couldn't, I think he and AT&T couldn't get along once they acquired all those properties. But to me, that's the interesting drama. You know, can you can one of these more bespoke streaming services create a product that's so essential that you can't live without it? I think Netflix gonna, is going to win no matter what because it's a supermarket. But, Bill, I do sort of wonder, you know, is there going to be one Whole Foods equivalent? It's certainly possible. And I wouldn't bet against HBO. Uh, Because as you said, like they have done this very well for a very long time. They used to have that slogan, it's not TV, it's HBO, which, you know, of course it was TV, but that really told you what they were all about. They were saying, this is something different. You're not going to be able to see Tony Soprano anywhere else. You're not going to be able to see the wire. You're not going to be able to see six feet under, you know, we're offering you something special here and kind of like this sense that, and if you're a part of it, that means you're special too, uh, which gets back to maybe that was also played a role in the beginning of this fragmentation. Um, you know, there's a lot of trash on Netflix, no doubt about it. But I, I also think it's the the rumors of Netflix's demise uh, are greatly exaggerated as well. Let's let's not forget Bridgerton and Queen's Gambit were not that long ago. <laughs> it's not like we're talking about shows that were you know five, six, seven years ago. I do think Netflix took a hit with Disney because remember one of the things that. Uh, Netflix was doing is that that was really where the new Marvel TV universe could first be found. And now, of course, all of that is going to Disney Plus. But, you know, I, 
I, I, the idea of like just these, these huge Titans kind of emerging, battling it out a little bit, but then each kind of finding their own thing and moving on. I think that's very plausible. So, Carolyn, we have to go to a break here so we can get to Kevin, but uh, I want you to end it. I want you to answer your own question. If you had to uh, just pick one, what would you pick? Well, in thinking about it, I really think it would be Netflix because I do think that that, like you said, I mean, it's the grocery store. It's I think it's the one where there is the most uh, the the most things that people are talking about. I think I would feel culturally lost without Netflix for sure. Right. I mean, if you have to have a certain kind of Hungarian pesto, then, you know, you have to also go over to Whole Foods. But I, I agree. You could survive with, with Netflix. I could get uh, by. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So we're going to take a break here. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about Kevin can F himself. Stay all night and play with my TV. TV is the thing this year. TV is the thing this year. Radio is great, but it's out of date. TV is the thing this year. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We are back. Uh, we uh, have with us today uh, Bill Usman, a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University, Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, dancer, uh, founder, director of choreography of Kinetic Dance. We're not now about to talk about a series called kind of Kevin Can F Himself. Uh, it's on AMC+. Plus. Uh, it fuses elements of the sitcom and elements uh, of kind of more dramatic television. Uh, it toggles back and forth between single camera and camera and multi-camera. Uh, uh, similarly, between no laugh track and laugh track. Uh, Jonathan McPants and I were trying to figure out whether, uh, whether there's a difference between a videotape and film. Uh, it's kind of hard to tell, actually, whether that's happening, too. But So it's really kind of playing around with two different sensibilities. It stars the, to my mind, somewhat Carolyn Payne-like Annie Murphy um, uh, as a frustrated uh, housewife, like a really frustrated housewife. Um, <laughs> and and it's, it's set in Worcester, and it really does explore. Now I, now I have to figure out what I can say and what I can't say, Kat, because we figured out I have to say Kevin can F himself, uh, and I, but I could say Schitt's Creek, which Annie Murphy was also in. The question is, can I say mass holes? Because I think that this, this is very much about uh, that particular subculture uh, as well, uh, one that Carolyn is also very familiar with. So, Carolyn, I, I want to begin with you. I mean, you're the most finely tuned uh, comedian uh, among us. Uh, you know, I don't know. What did you think with about the way they were playing around with all this stuff? So... 
I don't love this show, which <laughs> <laughs> surprise, a show I don't love. But I, I think I, I was a little disappointed. So I think that Annie Murphy is incredible. Like I, I think that she, for some reason in this show is just not, she's not sparkling as much as I feel she is capable in this show. Uh, and I can't figure out why, if it, I don't know where the show is failing me because when I heard about it and with the premise and everything, I really thought like this was going to be, uh, you know, one of my summer binge hits. Uh, but I, I love, you know, as somebody who grew up in, uh, in Boston, they, the thing that I will say they do really well is the casting of the mass holes and the accents and really capturing, I mean, this is set in Worcester, which is a very specific, there is a certain like Worcester vibe that I think they are completely <laughs> nailing. Yeah. Um, so, and I, I mean, conceptually, the show is fascinating because uh, for years, I mean, we've all watched these sitcoms or been aware of sitcoms. Like this to me is definitely like a uh, King of Queens ripoff. When it's in its sitcom mode, it's definitely giving me even the set like looks like they just took the set of King of Queens. Uh, and I, I except that uh, somehow in the differences and I guess like we we just kind of accepted that there was like an underlying like happiness between, you know, like uh, the husband and wife in these relationships that didn't really seem like you're like, oh, wow, I wonder how this, why this woman and this man ended up together. But there, there seemed to be like a heart there. This explores the, the side that, you know, where that connection is not there. And that's a fascinating concept where, you know, that you have this woman who lives in this laugh track world where it should be like, oh, at the end of the half hour, all oh, our problems are solved. Our money is back. And, you know, we're going to go cuddle in bed now. And, that it's fine. This show explores that, that side of that real life. It breaks that fourth wall of the sitcom. So it's, it's interesting and it gives you a lot to chew on, but it's not, uh, like, I, I just don't think it's the most brilliant execution for me, including a kind of disappointing performance. She has moments, but compared to the character that she really embodied with Alexis and Schitt's Creek, uh, I, I'm not, I, I feel like there's something she's like held back here. All right. Well, I, I want to go over to Bill in just a second, but before we do that, um, to, to Carolyn's point, yes, this certainly does kind of exploit and play with that notion that's a very old one, that some blobby, schlumpy, charmless husband is somehow or other entitled to a, a felt, stylish, and, and interesting wife. Uh, here's a little montage of how old that idea is. You seem to have forgotten that I am a woman. I forgot that you're a woman? How could I? You're always yapping. This bowl he gave me is no good. It's full of holes. Full of holes? Those holes are supposed to be in it. You put your fingers in them, you numbskull. Red Flint! Why would dumbbells like that live at the beach in the wintertime? Maybe it's because Russ is a plumber and he likes to hear the sound of water running. <laughs> Well, when you see Russ, be sure and shake your head, huh? So we can hear the water on your brain. Now, Peg, I'm making a stand here. I'm not kidding. I want a meal. I want it now. Get it? Huh? <laughs> What'd you say, Al? I'm sorry. I wasn't listening. I don't know. It, 
Just something about me being a man. It wasn't important. <laughs> to the moon, Lois! To the moon? What, what does that mean? You know, to, to the moon. Okay, you're threatening to punch me so hard, I'm gonna fly to the moon? Like, like it's funny to hit me so violently, my body will fly out of the atmosphere. Well, it's not funny anymore. <laughs> all right, that's the Honeymooners, the Flintstones, all in the family, married with children, and the family guy, which kind of, you know, circles us back, the snake eating its tail, to the Honeymooners, a montage uh, prepared by our producer, Jonathan McPants. So... Yeah, I mean, Bill, if you had to tell somebody one thing about Kevin Kedeff himself, that's probably the first thing you'd say, right? That it takes that whole idea that, you know, and then it says, what if the woman just couldn't stand another minute of it instead of just putting up with it in this eternally, eternally prozacked out way that seems to be, be the abiding trope in sitcoms? What if the woman just absolutely turned on the whole situation? That's the, the, I think the question at the heart, at least, uh, of the, the initial bite of the series. Yeah, absolutely. And that was a great montage uh, by McNichol. And it speaks to, there's a, there's a kind, of, kind of classic media studies essay called um, Why Does Television Keep Recreating the White Working Class Male Buffoon? And, you know, there's just, it just does it decade after decade after decade. But the thing is here, all of those shows were sitcoms. And so as we've talked on the nose before about sitcoms, you know, at the end of the day, they can't really go too dark because there's got to be some kind of comforting resolution. And the thing about this show Kevin can F himself. I successfully got through that one time. <laughs> um, is, is that it's not a comedy. I think we have to be very clear that this show taken in its entirety, and I don't think you can talk about either of those aspects of it in isolation from the other. It's all about the contrast and the dialectic between them. It really is not a comedy. The supposed comedy elements of it when when you're in the world with Kevin and it's really really brightly lit and the colors are popping and it's you know that multi-camera sitcom I wish this wasn't radio so we could show you images of the contrast because they're so stark when you're in that world the comedy of it it's not funny at all I don't I don't ever find myself laughing. In fact, those segments are kind of painful to sit through. So I kind of get why someone might not really enjoy that that much, but they're not supposed to be because it really is all about how this is that being in this relationship is destroying her soul. Okay, I'm gonna, I'll, none I wanna, of those uh, other shows ever dealt with that. I want to play another clip here. Uh, this is what the kind of multi-camera part of this, the traditional sitcom style um, phase of these uh, episodes sounds like. About the party, I've been thinking. Oh, no! That maybe instead of a rager, we could celebrate our 10th anniversary with something more... Adult. Like a threesome? Um, no. No, like maybe a, a grown-up dinner together. I mean, we are 35. Yeah, but you're lady 35 and I'm boy 35. What's the difference? Well, I'm just hitting my prime and you... 
Ah, uh, two. Very quick. I think she bought it. Come on. You love the anniversary. You always say, I don't want one. But I know you have the best time putting it together. Oh. I do love a plan in phase. That's my girl. Nothing says potty like your flow charts. So, Carolyn, you know, I mean, um, I, I actually do occasionally laugh at the stuff at the stuff that's in the kind of. I mean, there's particularly this character Neil, who's this. You know, he was even less functional than all the other dysfunctional people uh, in the series. I mean, he's just he's such a Simpsons character almost that um, uh, that that he will occasionally make me laugh. But it seems to me that Bill's identifying, I think, one of the stresses on the series, which is is the is the funny thing funny enough to be funny, to work as funny? Is the dark thing dark enough to work as dark? Particularly because ultimately it kind of asks the question, you know, would Thelma or Louise devote her time to trying to kill Homer Simpson? You know, I mean, in other words, is the sort of car- <laughs> is the cartoonish man, you know, in in uh, in the multi-camera sitcoms uh, part of the series worth the kind of rage and darkness we see uh, from uh, from Allison in the you know in the darker kind of Breaking Bad part of the series? I don't know. Just react to that, Carolyn. Well. So I feel like the Kevin character is such, I mean, he's beyond a buffoon. I think that they really do a good job of actually kind of taking the weight of all these years of basically abuse that women have had in a sitcom format and these sitcom relationships and kind of really making it feel very heavy with him. So that for me, the comedy of the show Sometimes there is something, I, I agree that that guy who's even more of a buffoon, the neighbor, it, he, you, you laugh just because he's just so pathetic. But uh, I think like the, the comedy of this show, I see those as sort of the darker, to me, that, that there's a lot of stuff that happens there, the interactions between them, I see as the darker stuff. And some of the comedy is happening during what you're calling the break in, Breaking Bad moments, where you know, it's it's her kind of in more this like real world facing things. You know, I think one of the things that made me laugh, probably because I found it, I found it very relatable and and I thought she did a great job with it when she in the first episode, she gets her sweater caught on mm-hmm. and on the trash can mm-hmm. and is and just is like literally unraveling. Uh that that to me, I mean it's like these little moments where it has I kind of like that like darker comedy and uh and the juxtaposition of that being to me sort of a more laughable thing than the abuse that I really do feel like she's getting from her buffoon husband and the the weight of like years of sitcom kind of being piled onto that. Uh, so I think it is, that is, you know, I, I think that it's interestingly done to take, if we're looking at that in that context. Right. Um, I like the I like the unraveling point. That's really uh, I'd sort of missed yeah. that. It's a, it's a lovely observation, Carolyn. Okay. Um, so, um, Bill, 
what this whole conversation is making me think about this in, in another way, which is like how many times have we come on this show and talked about some kind of new product and talked about the fact that it is neither exclusively comical or, or dramatic, that everything is serio-comic these days. Everything seems to you know contain elements of both. I, I would say that about Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad was frequently kind of funny, you know, um, and 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 the Sopranos and the Sopranos and all this stuff. This is the series that says, yeah, what if we actually took those two elements and actually that, that have been so seamlessly merged in very successful kinds of series? Yeah, Six Feet Under. We, we could run through the whole HBO catalog and there would be a, be a ton of those things. What if we took those things and actually yanked them apart instead of seamlessly blending? And, and if nothing else, Particularly if I were a media studies professor, I'd be really interested in seeing, you know, how that plays out and whether it really can do anything effective. Yeah, the bifurcation is real and it actually would be a good program to use in a media aesthetics class because they do so much with the lighting and the color and the sound and the camera to really establish that bifurcation. And I think what it accomplishes, I think, in that, and, and this is why I appreciate it, even though I do see like why there might be some limitations to both parts of it. I think what, what that contrast does is it really drives home that, you know, this is all fun and games for the boys, but, but for the woman, it is, it is soul crushing. It is, it is destroying everything that she's wanted has been really, really destroyed. I mean, we talked about in our emails, the coffee table that he destroys that is so emblematic of how much he has shattered in her in here. And I want to just say one other thing quickly, as much as it's about gender, I think it's also very, very much about class uh, because she has all of these aspirations of moving into a nicer house and, 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 you know, kind of changing um, her circumstances and her surroundings and her environment. And he has squandered that. He has squandered that on ridiculous schemes and, you know, crappy Patriots paraphernalia, send Patriots fans, send your hate mail to Colin, not to me. Uh, but, you know, he, it, 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 it in addition to being a, a, a statement about gender politics, it's also a statement about the false promise and the, the desperation of the American dream for so many families. Yeah, I mean, even the even the drug here, which is uh, oxy, right. oxycodone and oxycontin, sort of like lands very squarely on that sort of sort of you know, lower middle class slash working class environment of Worcester, yeah. uh, of white that Worcester half, that they're exploring. That half of the show is mayor of Easttown. Yeah, I think <laughs> right? so that's a yeah, really interesting point. Yeah. Okay. Very quickly here. I just want you to sort of hear a little bit. Look, this is sort of the darker single camera part. This is um, Annie Murphy's character, Allison, talking to her neighbor, Patty O'Connor, played by Mary Hollis in Bowden. And, and I think it's fair to say that Patty has already entered uh, for, and has been in for quite some time the rather dark world that you know Allison is kind of toggling back and forth between the brightly lit work of the world of the sitcom uh, and this new dark world she didn't really understand existed. But Patty's been there for a while. Here's what it sounds like. Do you ever think about maybe trying to have just a little bit of fun? I'm not talking about scoring crack or anything, but 
Maybe indulge in a hard seltzer. I don't feel like celebrating. Ah, oh, right. Silly me. We're all in mourning because Bobby lost out on a dream house. It's not about the house. I just am so tired. Yeah. Who sleeps these days? No, oh, jeez. I mean mentally. Not you. I wake up, I go to the salon, I come home, I watch a game with the guys. In between, there are a few donkeys, coffees, and a pack of menthols. You're okay with that? Everyone knows what their life's gonna look like in 10, 20 years. Pretending things will change is how they sell washing machines. We're probably just going to have to end there, but that this is Kevin Ken F himself. It's on AMC Plus. If you're really smart about it, you can do the free seven day trial and either decide that you're hooked or you're not hooked. Uh, but uh, we'll take a little break and we will come back. My love has no beginning. My love has no end. No front or back, and my love will bend. Lost in spin Loving you So I have to thank, first of all, Kat Pastor. She's here in the studio with me, making everything hum and sound good. Uh, and Jonathan McPants, always the producer of The Nose. And today he's producing under duress. He is uh, in Hamden, which is uh, mostly underwater at this point, and is essentially reenacting another one of Carolyn Payne's favorite shows or series or movies or whatever, Sharknado. He has a sharks in his house right now attacking him and his family while he attempts to produce with no power and... But he can't leave because of flooding, and, and yet he's producing the show anyway. Sounds great to me. Uh, here on the show today, Carolyn Payne and Bill Huseman, we're going to make some recommendations to you right now. Uh, Carolyn, why don't you get us started? Okay, so uh, while we're mentioning shows that we can't say the title of on air, <laughs> uh, I I don't know if I endorsed this before, but I recently rewatched it because I got panicked and didn't want to pick anything new. Uh, the true crime documentary, Don't F with cats is uh, horrifying and terrifying, but so fascinating. And it uh, is a look at, um, so, you know, civilian, how how the Internet solved a crime. And uh, it's really it's really fascinating. It's on Netflix. So I highly recommend that if you are into um, if true crime is your porn and also on Netflix, um, the show special which is a um, it's a two there are two seasons and it's about a young man with cerebral palsy but he is he he has as he describes it like a mild case and uh, he actually the the main character wrote and I believe directed some of this and he stars in it and he is brilliantly funny and it is uh, about his life uh, as a he's a comedy writer for a internet magazine and uh, his life as a young gay man uh, with cerebral palsy trying to fit in into this crazy world. And it's really fun. Uh, so I recommend I recommend those two things. All right. Bill Usman, what have you got for us? So if my memory doesn't fail me, I think the very first time I was on the nose, uh, the comedian and activist Dick Gregory had just passed away. And my endorsement was just was just Dick Gregory. 
as a human being, his life. So now to bring it around, there is a new Showtime documentary about his life. Uh, the one and only Dick Gregory is what it's called. And he was a fascinating person who went through all kinds of trials and tribulations and uh, was just as much a comedian as he was an activist and just as much an activist as he was a comedian. So that's my first endorsement. And my second one is um, one of these Substack newsletters that I've kind of become semi-addicted to. Um, I've really lately been into one by um, Charlie, uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's Warzel or, or Warzel, but anyway, Charlie Warzel, uh, who used to write for the New York Times is, and now has set out on his own. And his uh, newsletter is called Galaxy Brain. And lately he's been writing a lot about stuff that you've done some shows on, Colin. Um, what is the workplace going to be like in the so-called post-pandemic era? And how is that going to force us to have to reconsider like the whole role of work in our lives? And I think he's doing some really interesting stuff on that. So, th so it's a Substack newsletter called Galaxy Brain. So uh, we are probably going to do the Black Widow uh, movie uh, on the nose next week. We rarely know that uh, one Friday to the next, but we seem to know it right now. I was really struggling to come up with something this week because I'm kind of in the middle of a lot of things. And, and like I'm halfway through the Tomorrow War. I don't know why I would just sit through the entirety of the Tomorrow War. Uh, and I'm in the middle of a book. The one thing that I could think of that's kind of just ridiculous, but uh, I'm often looking for a podcast that's interesting and funny. Uh, and... Um, is also kind of not particularly stressful to listen to. And so I've been reshuffling my podcast feed, and I, I just added uh, to my podcast feed. I'm picking up my phone right now to take a look at it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've, I've added the Judge John Hodgman podcast. This is a, a series, a podcast series, where the comedian John Hodgman uh, tries to resolve in legalistic ways uh, these rather commonplace and idiotic disputes. But the one I really want to mention uh, is a rerun that he put up uh, last week, or I guess earlier this we call it Might As Well Judge. And it involves uh, these two guys who argue all the time about uh, Michael Anthony, who's the basis for, was the basis for Van Halen. Uh, and so John Hodgman and these two guys uh, and John Hodgman's bailiff, uh, who's the guy who hosts <laughs> Bullseye, um, uh, and the musician John Darnielle from the Mountain Goats have this long, long conversation about Van Halen with lots of legal rulings in it and arguments and stuff like that. And I don't care about Van Halen. I don't care about any of this. But once one sort of white guy, college-educated white guy culture is extirpated just the way that Tucker Carlson worries that it's going to be, they should preserve this thing, these five white guys <laughs> having this you know, inappropriately cerebral conversation about the basis of Van Halen, just to sort of show what that was and, and how engagingly ridiculous and empty you could possibly be. So it's the Judge Hodgman uh, podcast. You want the episode called Might As Well Judge. Uh, all right. Thanks very much to uh, Bill Usman and to Carolyn Payne. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants and Cat Pastor. And thanks to you for listening. And we'll come back next week. Hey, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah.